Hi, I'm Michelle Lepe. You might know me as Nina from The Good Night Show on Sprout. You're listening to a podcast where nostalgia comes alive. It's Jake's Happy Nostalgia Show. Roll it! Welcome to Jake's Happy Nostalgia Show, the podcast where nostalgia comes alive. Since July of 2021, Jake and his friends have interviewed professionals in the worlds of acting, directing, writing, puppeteering, and many more. Who will they be chatting with in this week's interview? Find out in this Jake's Happy Nostalgia Show episode. Hey everyone, welcome to this episode of Jake's Happiness Hour Show, where nostalgia comes alive. I'll be here with us. Thank you for joining. I'm your, I'm your, as always, I'm your host, Jake Duffenbaum, and as always, our co-host, Chris Bixby, and Matt Bingo. How you guys doing? Doing good. good. Hello, everybody. How you doing, Jakey? I'm doing great, Matt. Thank you for asking. What do we have for today? Glad you asked. Today's guest is a writer and composer. He's best known for his work on Sprout, including The Chica Show and The Good Night Show. He was also the showrunner and executive producer for the TV series My Babysitter's a Vampire, based on the television movie. But going back a bit further, he wrote the 1997 movie An American Werewolf in Paris, which is a sequel to John Landis's 1981 film An American Werewolf in London. Great movie, by the way. Go check it out. And he wrote on one of Jim Henson's last projects when he was alive, The Jim Henson Hour, particularly the one-hour special Dog City which eventually became a show of its own in 1992. Please welcome Tim Burns. Tim, welcome. Happy to have you here. Oh, thanks for having me. Great to see you guys. Yeah, of course. Great to see you Likewise. too. It's a pleasure. Happy to have you here. Likewise. So um, I kind of introduced you a little bit, but for those who don't know, would you care to introduce yourself a little bit and what you do? Uh, I'm Tim Burns and I'm a Canadian weirdo. I think that's really <laughs> all you need to know. Um, <laughs> I've been writing a uh, weird comedy and weird music since uh, since my twenties, and um, one of my I started out writing sketch comedy. Well, before that, I was a drummer in a punk band, but I uh, started out writing sketch comedy uh, while writing catalogs by day, and then um, that led me to somebody who needed a Canadian for the Jim Henson Hour when that came to Canada uh, to shoot. So uh, I I got that gig as the uh, young Canadian nobody on the Jim Hansen Hour, and that um, spurred on to meeting all these wonderful people from the Hansen organization and the Muppet world, and that led to most of what followed in my career, everything from uh, Freaked. You didn't mention the amazing, weird cult movie Freaked that I co-wrote with uh, Tom Stern and, and uh, Tom Stern, who I met because we both auditioned for the Jim Hansen Hour, and... Um, then went on to make things like Babysitter Vampire and got into the whole horror subculture thing, wrote uh, American Werewolf with Tom Stern for that. And then also because I was a musician and a punk drummer, I started doing comedy songs and that turned into kids songs and my wife writes kids shows. And I'll tell you the whole story, but I'll let you guys ask questions. Short <laughs> version is I'm a Canadian weirdo. <laughs> right into the point. I like it. Yes. <laughs> So what was your background like and how did you grow up? I uh, grew up in Ottawa, capital city of Canada. And, um, you know, pretty pretty straight ahead stuff. But uh, my mom was a singer. And uh, so that was mostly my musical side came from that. that. And my dad was just really funny, self-educated, uh, witty guy. And I, I he was a salesman and worked uh, selling plywood and uh, lumber. And um, music and comedy kind of were my twin 
win parents ever since. And um, I was always the guy I always tell people I got elected grade five class president on the platform that I would write a story a day um, because I used to write comedy stories pretty thinly stolen from Mad Magazine. And I would read them aloud to class. And um, so you kind of know you're a writer when you're already uh, hiring yourself out to write stories in grade five. And then I was always writing comedy sketches for the assembly and and this and that. I just was obsessed with Monty Python and Second City and uh, and comedians and um, and drummers. I was really into drums and comedy. And those pretty much are still the things that uh, get me most excited. Nice. Nice. So, so what kind of got you into, uh, wanting to be a writer and composer? Um, well, like I say, I think, I think because of my parents, one being the funny one and the other being the musical one, they both kind of funny. Um, like they literally dragged me out of bed when I was a kid and say, Oh, you got to see this comedian. He's really funny. I'd be bleary eyed at 10 years old and watching, uh, Dom DeLuise or Jackie Mason or any of the old classic standups. And, uh, of course, yeah. I kind of, I got in trouble in grade four per, you know, we bring a, a record to the class party. I brought a, a George Carlin record. To a great <laughs> oh. And it started with a whole nice. piece did about the word shit and how it's an important swear word <laughs> for the middle class because it's not oh, quite the F word and it's not quite. And the teacher at a Catholic uh, separate school grade for that was very quickly. Oh, yanked no. And he's like, oh. I'm going to tell your parents. I'm going to tell your mother you brought this. I was like, my mother gave it to me. So <laughs> he didn't know what to do. And, uh, that was just, you know, and I was never that into sports or anything. I was kind of chubby and and um, odd, oddball, but I did have my small cluster of nerd friends that we liked the same weird comic books and the Batman show and that. And, um, and then even though I played drums in bands, um, I wasn't much of a musician in the fuller sense until... I was in a comedy troupe in uh, when I moved to Toronto. You know, I went to school in Toronto for radio and television, which was the closest I could get to showbiz uh, after high school. And I knew there wasn't going to be much of a showbiz career in Ottawa, which is very much a government town. Mm. So uh, I wanted to stay in Toronto and try and find a way to make a living in any way close to showbiz. And I got lucky that uh, somebody saw me in the college comedy show where I'd written a lot of sketches at the college show and hired me to write for a new radio comedy show on CBC radio. And um, while writing those shows, they would often say, Oh, we want to do a parody of a blues song or we want to do a parody of a, of a, of a, like a Celine Dion ballad. And I was the only one in the group that had any kind of musical background. So I went out to a pawn shop and bought a $50 broken up, guitar and learned basic blues chords and next thing you know i was getting into recording gear and i had a studio gear at home and um then i my wife bought me a piano when i was in my late for my 30th birthday and uh either luckily there was a jazz piano teacher up the street and i just i started getting into jazz and um more fuller composing and i, I just loved that whole world so um so now I have like a full recording studio in my home and a lot of nice microphones and I play drums and guitar and, and piano. And I, uh, I, I, it took a while, but I think I'm as much or more of a musician now than I am a writer. You know, it, it, they kind of ebb and flow. I, sometimes I get annoyed with the whole writing business because as I was telling somebody the other day, writing is like designing blueprints for buildings that 
often never get built. You know, you spend a lot of your life in development and arguing about what a certain project should be or could be. And then it, you maybe spend three, four years on something that never sees the light of day. At least when you're in a musician, I can write a song and produce it. And it, it, uh, it just, it's out the door and it's real and no one can stop me from doing it. And uh, that was, that was what was so great about doing all the music for Sprout and doing the music for Playhouse Disney before that um, was it was go, go, go. It was like, hey, we need three songs for this show by the end of the week. And I would write them and sing them and then they'd be out the door and they'd be on the air the next week. And that the the fast turnaround and the sort of uh, feedback of that was much was a nice antidote to the long and often slow process of writing and development and rewriting and funding and all that stuff. Nice. You see, now I. I... I have an interesting story. Nice. You mentioned uh, you mentioned uh, Catholic schools. I've got a real interesting story. I, I think I've told uh, oh. Jake and Chris this. Uh, my uncles were a part of this band. They did sound and lighting for a band. Uh, it was an ACDC tribute band. I think it was called High Voltage. This was, oh goodness, I, I want to say about maybe 1979, 1980, right, right around the time Highway to Hell was really popular. And I don't know what what gave them this motive, but uh, but they for some reason I don't know why they performed "Highway to Hell" at a church. I'm just I'm just sitting there hearing the story, like how in the hell? Obviously, they're they're like, "No, nah, you can't." Why you on can't, church? Can't play that here. I, that's what I was thinking. Like, first off, a rock band at a church actually that sounds like a bad idea, but it's like specifically that song. They're singing like, "Highway to Hell" at a church. Highway like, to Hell at a why? church. Like, <laughs> what? Oh, because but, it's a badge of honor if you get away with it, you know. You can, yeah, right. It the key word there, if you get away with it. Yeah. Obviously, they didn't, but it, it's it's just like I mean. Well, I had, I had a I had a good pal. His name was Eric. We kind of grew up as as best pals in Ottawa, and um, and we st we kind of got the job it wasn't really i think somehow we weaseled our way into writing morning announcements or doing comedy bits in morning announcement at high school but it was still a, a catholic junior high so the principal or vice principal would stand would kind of it was like my first experience with script notes because he would kind of read over it and just cross stuff out no no you're not going to say that and no, no 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 we're not we're not letting you do that joke and there was a lot of a lot of you know uh that's too insensitive <laughs> for a catholic school and then uh especially for a kid raised on Mad Magazine. And then uh, I still remember, I'm kind of proud of the fact that I did a, a drum solo in in the grade 10 band that went on too long and made one of the nuns uh, a little ill to her stomach. She had to be removed from the building because the uh, incessant tribal drumming kind of upset her sensibilities. And um, hmm. I shouldn't feel good about that. But at the time I was like, yeah, I made a nun sick. So... Uh, <laughs> that's that's not on my resume but this is a, an exclusive no, no, <laughs> right no, no uh similar similarly uh, i'll make this one quick my mom actually went to a catholic school uh she graduated in eight in 81 and uh uh they had they had a jukebox and uh for it wasn't her I but somebody no it wasn't that it the, the song that played was only the good die young by billy joel Mm. And and uh, you can tell how that went. They banned all Billy Joel songs from the jukebox. I don't know. Like, I'm getting in trouble for what I'm thinking of several jokes now that even even now I'm learning when to stop. I'm gonna stop right there. I just no no. Yeah, yeah. more Catholic jokes. 
I I love the Catholic Church. They're a wonderful, fine people, except for the times when they aren't. Uh, let's right. Not. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, but but it's just, but it's just like man, like like yeah. My my dad went to a public school. My mom went to a. It's all, a, it's all part of life's rich pageant, but um, oh yeah, oh yeah. Still, it's... I think I'm pretty proud of when I did Dog City, uh, for the Henson Hour, which was the first script I'd ever written, longer than a five minute comedy sketch. Uh, but at the time, I was so excited to be on that show and in that room. It I was maybe the least experienced person there, um, and I'm pretty sure I got hired me and Tom Stern, when we had the initial meetings in New York for uh, everyone they were considering for the writing staff, there was about 10 or 12 of us, I think. Um, Tom Stern was the only other guy in the room who was like a 20 something with no credits. And we kind of huddled in the corner and were terrified. And, um, and I still, he was still mad that I got the gig and I was, mad, I was a little like, geez, I don't know why they picked me over him, but I think it was cause I was a Canadian. They probably needed a Canadian while shooting in Canada. Um, but I would talk so much in the meetings, I would get so nervous and and try and make jokes about everything and try and impress people that uh, I got called into Jim's office pretty early. And I was pretty sure that Jim and Jerry Jewell, the head writer, were going to fire me because I was uh, talking too much. And um, instead, Jim Jim said, I got this idea about the ga a dog a gangster movie, and uh, I thought you'd, you'd be good to write it because you're very funny in the meetings. And... Um, so I was like, oh, wow, I, I am going to get to write a, a an actual full half hour. And then, oh, my God, panic. I've never written a full half hour before. What do I do? And I, I just thought of every dog joke I could think of. And I strung them together into this rough shape of a story and handed in, I don't know, I was thinking of like 85 pages or something. <laughs> when it should have been like 30 pages, I, I just wrote everything. And, um, and then Jim called me into his office and again i thought i was going to get fired and instead he said um it's a little long but uh i'm going to go to the network and see if we can get an hour and do an hour special <laughs> i was like uh totally saved my life and uh was totally another example of how awesome jim henson was and uh and then because i got to do that the joke i was going to say the sort of testing the boundaries there's a joke where the uh sort of the gangsters mall kind of girl says uh you're not so fancy, girl. I seen you doing tricks on street corners. You know, jump through a hoop for a quarter, catch a frisbee for a dime, and uh, and that got in. And that's a that's a that's a that's a hooker joke in in a family dog show. So I'm uh, that that's also on my resume along with making nuns nauseous. <laughs> so nice. uh, you mentioned uh, writing for a playhouse, isn't you? What songs did you write for them? Jeez, um, that was during the period I moved to LA. Tom Stern and I did another show. We did a, a very weird show you might want to look up on TBS called The Chimp Channel, hmm. which was a half hour comedy show, all live chimps. A very strange uh, experience. And uh, I was running that. And uh, my wife, Bernice, uh, Bernice Vanderland, you might want to look her up. She writes a lot oh. of pre shows and she's written a lot of shows for Sprout and, and Playhouse Disney. Uh, and another friend of ours, Lisa O'Brien, who's like one of my wife's best friends and is a Canadian, but she was with Disney and has been with Disney and Sprout from the beginning. So they both know, knew I was a musician and um, they needed stuff when they were launching. I think it was Lisa and uh, I think the exact name was Andrew Beecham, 
when they first started up Playhouse Disney. Uh, and they had this little morning character called Clay, who was sort of like the. Yes. Oh, yeah. yeah. And they yes. said, can you write just a little theme song for Clay? So I grabbed my guitar and said, hey, it's Clay. Come on, let's play. And like, great. It was on the air the next day. I, I just thought it was a demo. I didn't even think. I just thought, is this the kind of huh. thing you want? And next thing I know, it's it's on the air. And I was like, oh, geez. Um, and then that just started the floodgates. They started calling me for, um, can you do these promos? We I did a lot of promos. You know, Monday's a fun day. I play House Disney. Tuesday's a fun day. Play oh, House yeah, Disney. yeah. Yes. Yeah. yes. I, I did that. And uh, I did a lot of stuff for them. And um, so did you did you do like the music in their like coming up next spots? Did you do the music for those? I did a lot of them. I don't think I did all of them, but I did. Oh wow! Oh nice! Wow. That's that's cool. Wow. Got a hard drive full of that stuff, and um, and then it was a lot of the same people that started Sprout, so I was on their their list. So I ended up, you know, getting the call to do the Sunny Side Up show, the Good Night show, the um, mm -hmm. musical on a stick, the Chica show. I did a lot of songs. I mean, even I forget how many, because I was still working as a writer and screenwriting and doing uh, my day job writing. This was kind of stuff on the side to a certain degree, but there were certainly weeks where it took over my life and it was like, oh, I don't think I'm going to get my script done because I'm up all night trying to play a guitar part to uh, one of these Sprout songs. Because um, I'm not very good at any instrument other than drums. I'm kind of a, a uh, medium level a guitarist piano bass player but uh i fake it well and thank thank god for computers <laughs> yeah absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. Yes. we act and since you mentioned clay we actually previously chat with debbie derryberry who actually the voice of clay yeah okay yeah no, neutron yeah and i saw you did uh you know you talked to stacia and and michelle and a lot yeah, of them yes. uh, yeah, yes, we did. They were wonderful. Yes, yeah, wonderful. and the Let's Go show. I don't know if you guys know the Let's Go. Yeah, show. Yeah, uh -huh, yeah. Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah mm -hmm. I did the theme for that, and I did about twenty mm -hmm. songs for that. I, there's some of my favorite yeah. from that show. Oh. Um, for a while, I remember I was almost doing like a song a day. I had to write one a day, pretty much. But uh, oh my gosh, there was yeah. But I a lot came out of that, and then I did like Norman Pickle Stripes was came from the same place i don't know if you saw that stop motion animated show it's a uh, nbc peacock or uh forget what what do they call that uh, that was a great series I mean, I nbc no peacock, peacock kids, is it? i'm blanking on it but um yeah it's it just was nbc for kids i think at the end of the day i just realized i've got a good ear for catchy melodies that's sort of my strength and being a writer i tend to be able to come up with you know just sort of a hookier lyric or something that, that has a bit of fun to it i usually try and make something a little bit funny or, or clever so um that that's a good mix and it doesn't hurt that often like a lot of those shows chica show and um sunny side up my wife is working on them writing scripts so i kind of have an insight to like what kind of who is this character what kind of music are you looking for how you know do you want it to be funky do you want it to be folky do you, you know what what's the level of of uh, fun involved you know but um it's a great it's a great outlet for me that's for sure i uh i really i kind of needed that i think i would have gone i would have said i was gonna go crazy i would have gone more crazy if i was uh not doing music as much as i did and and it's amazing to look back on it now and look how much stuff is out there that right. I, I don't forget doing it's uh there's a lot of it 
<laughs> Definitely. And since we talked, yes. since we kind of talked about how you got to Sprout, um, if you if you can remember, do you have any like favorite songs you got to write for Sprout? Oh gosh, I'm I'm more curious which ones you remember if you guys remember any. But um, oh, I know yeah. there's a lot of the ones I like for were for the the uh, Let's Go show. Um, oh I yeah, mean, like like uh, um, Safari so goody. That's a good yeah, song. Safari so goody, yeah. yeah. Safari mm-hmm. so goody. I like that one a lot. There was one called "To the Moon." Oh, yeah, yeah. uh huh. Mm-hmm. They liked. I think I liked it because of the lyric. You know, well, it's kind of a blues song, sort of a Leon Redbone, mm-hmm. uh, uh, piano blues thing. And uh, I like the like uh, on the moon. There's way less gravity, so you weigh way less than on Earth. You see, um, and when we hit the sea of tranquility, we will float and float. And, and uh, Milton and Allie, who sang those songs, were just they were great. They came to my studio here in in. Uh, just outside Toronto in my basement studio. And and um, we just had a blast. We kind of banged off five or six songs in a session. You know, we kind of, we had so many to get through, but they were really talented. Like they, it's often hard to find people who can act and sing and sort of combine them in a way. So they're still in character, but they're also nailing the notes and the phrasing and all that stuff. And they're, they're masters at it. So that was, that was really fun. Definitely. Another song I like oh, yeah. uh, that was, uh, I can't remember what year it was, but it was during Halloween. There was a song you wrote called "The Halloween Parade." Oh yeah, the Halloween Parade. And, yeah. and, it, and it showed like clips of uh, kids in like different Halloween costumes. Yeah, yeah, and there was like a Thanksgiving song called "Kindness Counts." That was kind of almost like yes, a yes. That was a fun one. Yes, and you also wrote the do the you. Yeah, do the you. I do the me. You do the you. And another one is um, because we're because we're gonna, you know, mention like different blocks and stuff. But one of my favorite uh theme blocks that I think you wrote was the uh Sprout Diner theme. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Come on. Yes. Sprout Diner. It is the appetite. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> you got to sing it to me because I forget. There's a little been a lot of songs. But that's <laughs> a, that's it, a good it, one. It was like, come on, come on in, wait for a bite. Yeah. Or something like that. Sounds like me. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, I got it. Um, yeah, it's weird because again, my I often think my mom was a real a real singer. And anytime I would open my mouth even to sort of try and say that song that goes like this, she would just make this cringing face like somebody was like stepping on a cat. And uh <laughs> and I just I was always pretty embarrassed about singing or hearing my own voice. Yeah. So it's kind of really yeah. weird my voice come out of the speakers on so many songs and uh, a lot of them sometimes i would do the guide track and then the, the the actors would replace me but there were quite a few of those promos and other songs that are me singing and uh and i don't like to auto-tune too much because it to right. me it's just it's too robotic and especially right. yeah music, i want it to sound real and kind of handmade and i don't want it to sound too processed and commercial you know that was uh, right I tried to use as much acoustic instruments and real things as possible mm-hmm. so it wouldn't sound too too slick. Uh and uh, I can't do slick anyway, so it's it works out. <laughs> and yeah, so well uh, dino stomp. Oh the dino stomp, yeah. Uh, geez, I should have a hard drive of all my Yeah, I mean I think also the the theme song to the the Good Night show uh was was one of my favorites too. Oh yes. The ending theme. That's just I really like. Oh, yes. Hey, okay. Yeah. It's time to say goodnight. Dun, dun, dun. We got got ways to go. Bubbles to pour. Stories to share. And 
grow. Yeah. So good night, good night, good night. Yeah. Yeah, that's a nice one. Yes. Yes. Melody, that's a good one. Yes, mm. absolutely. Yes. What of what of great songs? Uh, uh, during your time with Sprout, as we brought up earlier, you wrote and sang the theme songs for a number of their blocks. What was the process like getting to work with those? Uh, it was pretty lonely and solitary. Just you know, despite what you may think, I I didn't even get to uh like meet a lot of the cast and stuff until much later. I think I'm remembering. Uh, but you know, generally it was always a rush. There was always three or four things going on concurrently. And it would be like, we've got this new show coming up or this new block. Can you come up with something? And um, again, if I'm, you know, I was trying to find some of the tracks I was thinking, oh, for you guys, I should load some stuff up on SoundCloud and, and then you could like needle drop things if you'd forgotten. But then I realized I can't make sense of my hard drives now from that period because there's like nine remixes and three revisions and the lyrics changed. And then I'm like, I don't know if I'm allowed to upload this stuff, but right. But it's usually that process. I try and do a rough demo that's just guitar and I don't want to spend too much time on it if they're going to go, no, 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 that's the totally wrong area. It's always a tough question as a composer, I've found. If you don't make the demo slick enough, they may reject it just because it sounds too bare bones uh so you do have to put enough work into the rhythm track and the orchestration that at least it sounds like they get the idea this is going to be funky or this is going to be folky or whatever it is um, but you don't want to waste two days recording all these tracks and background harmonies for something that they go yeah that's great but we wanted something rock and roll and this is folk you know you don't want to be too uh off the map with it so i have right. a lot of versions of all those songs but i know generally generally it was about for me get the melody right and get the tempo right you know just get that is it doom dee do, doom dee do, or is it doom, dee, are we driving are we you know what's the <laughs> maybe that's just thinking like a drummer but i just sort of think how what's the energy level of this gonna be and uh and what's the hook what's the little chorus what's the little earworm part of it gonna be that sticks with you and if i've got that it's often my first version is a night i play it's like that sort of mumbly thing and believe it or not i probably have versions of songs that are like that that are just the night version and then i fill in the blanks from there and spruce it up and um um but i am a studio nerd i like I think I grew up with a lot of bands like Queen and 10CC and and ELO that had layers and layers of background vocals. And when you don't like your own voice, the solution is do 20 of you instead of one of you. That way you just sound like 20 mediocre singers in the background instead of one scary guy. So a lot of my stuff tends to have a lot of background vocals and harmonies and, and layers of stuff. Uh, and that that turns out well because it means you kind of write more into melodic stuff you know i can't do a blues solo i can't knock you out with a celine dion uh, diva performance nobody needs to hear that right yeah and it's really cool that you, you also sang of course in canada show and then other things but you know, for you saying brand new day chica's here and t talk about the sprout diner theme song didn't you sing that as well yeah, I barely. That's one from. I know I was in. Yeah, because yeah, I can. That was really early, Sprout. That was like. Yeah, I, 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 I can hear that it was your voice. 
too. He's like, so come on, going to that. Is that that one? Yeah, yeah, that one. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. there was another one too that was. Um, I was just thinking it was kind of another. Oh yeah, it was called the do wash, do wash, do wash your hands, do wash your fingers, and in between soap and water. It was some kind of wash your hands song. I had to come up with. I think that oh, was yeah. first, uh, the do wash song. Hmm. It was almost like an old vocal group fifties kind of arrangement. Um, yeah, I I think Sprout Diner. I just wanted to do. I think because Diner often makes you think retro, makes you think fifties, sixties. Right. So uh, it had to be a uh, something that had a doo wop kind of like a kind of like a swing kind of. Yeah, swing like doo wop. Yeah. So not not as rock and roll, but um, just that kind of later vocal group style, like Manhattan Transfer used to do and stuff. And uh, that is, I think, also growing up because of my mom being kind of a big band singer who around the house played a lot of the Ella Fitzgerald and Peggy Lee and Tony Bennett and Frank Sinatra and that stuff. Unlike a lot of my contemporaries, you know, I was playing in a punk band doing sex pistols and clash songs, but I knew all the <laughs> Ella Fitzgerald and, and Frank Sinatra tunes as well. Uh, I mean, I was just familiar with that style and I've always had a pretty big ear. I don't, I don't really like one kind of music. I, my, uh, collection is is all over the map and if it's if it's got a good tune and an interesting beat i'm i'm a fan so that that pays off in a in a gig like this where you're doing doo-wop music one day and bluegrass the next and uh and then you know you might want to do something funky and sly in the family stone but then you got to do something beatlish or you know old school it's it's whatever uh, whatever works for the particular character or venue but uh and i think again the let's go show and even the um chica's costume coupe show or whatever that was we there's a lot of fun songs in that for this oh yeah, yeah. The, i did yeah, the theme the, to that it was all the chica show. yeah yeah chica show yeah mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um which my wife she, uh, was the head writer on that i think or co-created and yeah i got the gig because i'm sleeping with the producer literally half the time no. um but that's because i swear because my wife it's my wife uh, i'm not don't worry don't you don't have to cut that out for the catholic school people um. <laughs> so uh we talked talked a little bit uh briefly about a preschool musical on a stick which uh you wrote uh songs for that what was that like um that was a blast that was a really cool show and there was i think that's actually i'll get i'll get modeling now but i think that might be my favorite song that i've written was in that show and it was a sort of situation where I think everyone was trying to get to a party and try again, this is a bit fuzzy in my memory what the setup was, but Banjo, I think, is yeah. waiting for her friend to get there and the friend might not make it and they're they're at the party. And so she sings this kind of sad song. If That's my right. friend yeah. And my mom had just passed away around the time that happened. Oh. So I was writing that song thinking about my mom and about if she were here and it's a really nice it's one of my favorite melodies and chord like I, I think I would have impressed my piano teacher I was always trying to impress my piano teacher when I was writing anything jazzy because my piano I got so lucky when my uh side story I, I turned 30 I'd always been saying I wanted to learn piano for like one day about two weeks before my birthday uh, delivery truck pulls up outside and a guy comes to the door and my wife runs by me and says get out and I'm like what do you mean get out just get out it's like okay 
because I was the guy literally said the words, where do you want the and then she like pushes me out of the way. So I get out, I come back in half an hour, there's a barricade in our living room with like a curtain over it and a bunch of boxes and it says do not open till your birthday. Oh, <laughs> and I am sure 100% sure that it's exercise equipment. <laughs> I'm sure that it's a running machine because I've been saying I need to get in shape. I should get a running machine, a treadmill. And oh, darn, my my poor, wonderful wife has believed me and bought me a running machine. And now I'm already planning how I'm going to look excited and thrilled to get a running machine on my 30th birthday. So um, cut to my birthday, which just happens to be Halloween. Uh, oh, yeah. And uh, I pulled down the curtain and it's not. A, ro a rowing machine or a treadmill it's a piano a nice old upright piano um so hooray i get to start to learn piano and someone says oh there's a guy up the street teaches piano and i he's around the corner i go meet this guy well he's the head of the jazz department at york university there's him and oscar peterson are the two jazz teachers at the time at york and um this guy is like world-class jazz aficionado that people come from all over to teach with him and i'm just like beginner show me the c scale anyway that's where i took piano lessons for 10 years was with this guy i would go early just to eavesdrop on the guy ahead of me and the guy after me just to pick up as much as i could and he was a to this day I, i've never seen or heard of a guy who's a, just a better teacher a guy who's just better at so that anytime i would write a song and he taught me all this jazz stuff i i I would just go, oh, Frank would be impressed that I went to this chord or this strange little inversion of that thing. And I would try and hide the clever stuff, the jazz stuff in amongst the poppy stuff. And I'm still first level at a lot of that stuff. I'm not a real jazz player, but um, but in that song, uh, I think I, I was trying to write like an old school Sinatra's Ella Fitzgerald style jazz standard ballad about... Uh, things not going your way and and um you know it, it all that's still i think that song still breaks me up every time i hear it because it's just i i the melody everything about it is it's that's the one I, I would put on my top top five for sure you know you guys i don't know but uh yeah for me because of my mom and everything it has a lot of a lot of significance that's a long story for a short song but there you go <laughs> <laughs> um the nice. rest of the trying to think what else was on there but i think that's that's the one i remember most well the song this the song at the end of it is really cool there's nothing better than being all together yeah there's nothing better than, yeah that was a fun one that was kind of almost had a hip-hop element to it i think there was kind of a loop to it curtis was a great character i like that i forget the name of the actor that played curtis and he had, he was always playing stand-up bass or i always used stand-up bass for him he had a low voice and uh he was like the groovy dude at the back and uh remember him having a good vibe in that song there's again that's that's you know it's such a fun venue to work in when you get to write for characters that say okay this one's going to be bluegrass and banjo of course we got to banjo music and this kind of thing and then that character we're going to use stand-up bass and it'll be almost like hipster jazz uh you know bebop speak and um you get to just fly around to all these different versions of permutations of music which is my favorite thing to do is to do nine things at once <laughs> <You know? laughs> definitely 
Yeah, I was, nice. I'm trying to call up a, a hard drive to just give myself a list of all these songs so to see what I could remember. But you guys are doing a great job of uh, <laughs> running me through the paces of a lot of stuff I'd forgotten. Thank Even you. Um, <laughs> well, I just you. found an old, I found an old um, tape recently of the songs I wrote for Dog City. I think that was one of the first times I got away with writing songs. Uh, was I wrote. Um, like I think there's three or four songs in it. There's a song called "Dog's Best Friend" that is uh, that one dog sings. That's it's, it's a sort of like I can take or leave retrievers, and uh, it's all different bre breeds of dog with sort of puns and jokes on the dog styles that she sings in this in this sort of lounge song act. And um, at the time, I remember Jim Henson uh, put me on the phone with the music supervisor for the Jim Henson Hour, who happened to be a famous record producer named phil ramone and um if you look up phil ramone he's produced everybody from paul mccartney and the beatles and um wow. paul simon just some of the biggest names in the business i at the time did not know who he was so like an idiot uh jim just hands me the phone and says oh phil wants to talk to you and uh phil is oh phil ramone so i i he hands me the phone and, and Phil Ramone says, Hey, uh, how'd you write such great songs? They're really good. I think we're going to, we're going to do a good job on them. And, and I just said, Oh, okay, thanks. And handed the phone back to Jim. And I think he thought I'd be really thrilled that Phil Ramone liked my songs. And I, at the, I, at the time had no idea who that was. So I was such an idiot. I just, Oh yeah, good. I'm glad your friend Phil likes my songs. <laughs> but, <laughs> um, and then I think back at that later and going, Oh my God, I talked to Phil Ramone. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, but again i think i think the lucky thing was as long as and i think on that one i was not good enough musically to handle the music but you know it's sort of based on my ideas and then this uh, oscar winning guy named rob mouncey redid my songs and orchestrated them and stuff but they used my lyrics and um uh again i think that was just a chance to use my comedy writing chops and and i like I like silly rhymes and stuff. So, um, yeah, I'm uniquely suited to this weird job, oddly enough. <laughs> and it's weird seeing, you know, guys like you that have grown up with this stuff because I was in my whatever 40s or whatever when I did it. And it's hard to imagine that the people who are watching that as kids are, are now you folks. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Yes. I'm so old. You... <laughs> So you also wrote a number of songs for the Chica show. What was that kind of show like for you? Um, oh, it was a great show. I thought it was a really funny, wacky show. Again, my wife was a uh, head writer, I think, on it. And um, and I think she's pretty funny. That's part of the reason I married her. But um, <laughs> And we're both like big fans of both the classical Looney Tunes stuff and SpongeBob. We had our daughter was... Uh, yes. I think our daughter was around four or five at the time of that. And in a lot of the songs, let's go show stuff. And, uh, and the cheeky show song, you'll often hear our daughter. Anytime there's a kid's voice shouting something or singing something, it's probably our daughter, Ruby, who, uh, I, I pressed into service. I'd say, can you come down the stairs and just shout, let's go or something for me, for daddy, for a few moments. So anytime I, I, I still haven't quizzed her about how traumatic that was me forcing her to sing at random intervals, but, um, at the time i think she enjoyed it and um the chica show i like the theme to the chica show a lot i think that one yes. was, well, it was really bouncy and it really kind of yeah. suited the energy of the show yeah 
And it's kind of again, it's it's sort of big band cab Calloway, but with a little more oompa 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 to it. Um, <laughs> I don't even know how I'd characterize that, but um again, you know, a lot of times you think of who the cast are, you think who the characters are and who's gonna sing this and what 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 works best for them, like uh, the kind of person that can really, you know. Nail on Stacia's it was Stacia. I'm trying to remember who it was on that show. You guys probably know who who was Chica? It was Forrest, wasn't it? Uh, uh, Forrest, yeah, Forrest, Forrest Harding, yeah. Yep. Yeah, Forrest yep. Harding. Forrest Harding. And um and then the mom and the mom and the dad were Jen Barnhart and John Kennedy, which are and those two are also are previous, previous guests. guests. Yeah, yeah, they're wonderful. And they're pretty musical and they could really handle like you could write pretty much anything and they could they get it like it, it like sometimes mm. stuff that has trickier rhythms or syncopation throws throws people off if they're not musicians but if you're lucky enough like i was to get people that that uh you know have a musical theater background or can can handle that stuff then you can really get a lot more uh playful with with the rhythms and stuff so um i think that show was just you know, it wasn't really a SpongeBob, but I think there's a lot of great songs in SpongeBob generally that I, I always, you know, sir, my daughter was a big SpongeBob fanatic and now she's a marine biologist. Uh, so I think, I think largely because of SpongeBob. And, um, and I, I think the silliness in those shows, the silliness in the songs and the sort of just you can go anywhere and have fun. I think that was always the operating principle for me was, you know, I want this show to be fun for a kid to sing almost to the point of annoying the parents. You kind of you want to write something that the kid's going to sing so much the dad or mom will get like, that's enough of that song. Um, so that's that's my operating principle. Um, and earworms, you know, it's got to be something that even I get. And it's it's tough when you're working on this stuff and you've heard you're right. You're playing it over and over again in the studio and you're doing the overdubs and you're changing the harmonies. But then by the end of a day, you've heard that song 150 times and you cannot sleep at night because it is just <laughs> rolling. And a lot of those songs, <laughs> I can remember some that long nights where I just like, get that song out of my head. <laughs> That's, that means success. If it won't get out of your head, then you've done your job. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And and another song you actually wrote for the network. Do you remember the noodle, 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 and dirtle? Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Is that like a kind of yeah. like a like a like a like a brush your teeth type of like song like for that you use for for the commercial? Yeah, yeah, that's right. I can't. You know, you'd have to play that one for me to for me to remember it. But uh, it's um. it, it, like. The only lyric that I'm, like I can remember is there's one thing left to do, squishing around your face now to do, or something like that. Okay. so much fun, or something like that. I'm loving this. I I want to hear you guys do all my songs. Sure. Yeah. The concert I want to attend. Music of Tim Burns, sung by the people that lived it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that'd be cool, not gonna lie. I mean, the weird thing is that around the same time as I was doing a lot of that, I was show running My Babysitter's a Vampire, which, you know, I had written the the TV movie and then I I, I was the showrunner on the series, which was a pretty full-time gig. Um, 
putting those episodes together and often i'd have to come home from a you know 12 hour day of shooting that and then still write a, a chica song or a, or a, a sprout song and it would uh it was a bit of a a tornado of uh you know and then around around two, 2013 i think it was i i had i had to have heart surgery because i always had a, a a bad valve growing up which was part of how i became a fat nerd was uh, my mom you know had been warned by the doctor tim has a funky heart so uh that's why i write funky music and um so I find like life before and after heart surgery, which I had to have open heart surgery in 2013. Then it all kind of gloms into a bit of a blur as I get older. It's like, right, that crazy period when it was like babysitter vampire and Chica show and preschool. Like it was all just this big ball of stuff that uh, that I was going on 24 seven. And the last year has been a lot quieter. I'm like, I'm just sort of developing one show and I'm doing, I'm, I'm, my new ambition now is to write my own album. I've been, to, I've taken, I've got a hard drive. The last time I checked, there was about 1700 half written songs on my hard drive. Oh, wow. Uh, that's a rough estimate. Somewhere between 1700 wow. and 2000. So um, I'm trying to just pick my favorites or play some for friends and pick my favorites and actually do uh, an album of Tim Burns music. And part of my thinking was, I'd like to do a night at least one because I'm not much of a performer. I do not like to get up in front of people and and sing or, you know, drums. If I'm at the back, I love drumming, but I'm not a guy who wants to be in the spotlight with everyone looking at me. So, again, I think that's why I like doing kids music and people don't really notice who did it, but it, it's out there. Uh, but I always thought it'd be fun to do like this, a night where, okay, the first set is my best kids songs and get a bunch of people in and perform them and do like some versions of my favorite kid songs I've written. And then the second half would be my, uh, my grown up songs of, of even weirder stuff. That's much more in the uh, Frank Zappa and uh, you know, Harry Nilsson, Harry Nilsson meets Frank Zappa in a dark alleyway kind of songs. Um, but yeah. So, so you, you'd be warned. I'll be, I'll be hitting you guys up to promote my weird album uh, five years from now, if I ever finish it. Um, <laughs> Sounds good. Yeah. Nice. Thanks for reminding me about Nerdle and Dirtle. Nerdle and Dirtle. <laughs> I gotta look all these up. You guys should do a playlist or something. And if you want, I can I'll send you MP3s. I've got all of them. So all right. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. So moving on from your work composing for Sprout, you also wrote for other children's TV series, including Hello Mrs. Cherrywinkle. Yes. Yes. Uh could you talk a little bit about those series? Hello, Mrs. Cherry. Know that show at all? Remember that show? Do you guys? Anybody? No, you don't. You're too. You're too young. I think for that one. I think it was a little it, bit it, before it, our it, time. Before our time, yeah. Well, I think it also mostly aired in Canada. I'm not sure where it aired. Yeah, yeah, here. it was on Canada. Yeah, probably. Yeah, and again, that was yeah, that serious. was my wife's show. She created it, and um, oh wow, I was just cheap. Uh, it was like Tim, can you write songs for this? Because uh, she didn't have to pay me um <laughs> this is when it was in development she's she's not cheating on me she did she did pay me eventually when it was on the air um but <laughs> the star who played it was kind of like this this woman they just had a kind of my my wife grew up on a farm a chicken farm and um miss cherrywinkle was kind of like just had the a farm hangout and it was kind of like the chica show in some ways um 
and she turned out she was this great singer kathy robinson she was an american actress i think i think but uh she really had a broadway style voice and could really belt and um so i wrote a theme song for it that um was kind of bouncy country but but had a kind of like clap hands burns you know everybody come to the barn dance kind of thing um but then i got to write a bunch of songs for it uh that are also some of my favorites um there was the rain 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 go away kind of a version of rain rain go away i don't know if you ever did that as a kid you sing a little song to make right. rain go away mm-hmm. we did a version You're of that back another day yeah yeah we did a whole version that was almost like this uh big band conga it was like the rain rain samba and it, it was a really hmm. cool kind of um really cool uh latin big band number that i i really love uh and then there was the um there was she had a flower that talked it was like a talking flower named murray the gum flower and he was kind of like a wiseacre kind of a smart ass flower it was a really fun character in a um the actor that played him bob stutt i think was uh, a puppeteer who was really good but he was not a singer he was definitely not a musician so anytime his stuff that almost had to be like spoken word and yet we kind of he had there was an episode where he had a crush on another flower and he was i think the storyline was he was too insecure to talk to this pretty flower because he was just a a common everyday like a a gum flower i think was the kind of flower anyway i wrote a song for him (laughs) i am beautiful where i there this other character who was kind of like miss miss cherrywinkle sidekick was captain dingy and uh he was this guy johnny i forget his last name he was a good singer and so he trying bolsters murray the gumflower's confidence with this song i am beautiful like hey you know you can you can do it and um that's that's one of my favorite songs if you don't know i'll try and send you that one i am beautiful it's it's a big self-motivational you can do it everybody's got their own thing and then he uh murray gets all excited and um yeah that's 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 a sort of like a broadway almost like uh what's the little shop of horrors i think i think oh, i yeah. was thinking oh yeah uh-huh and um again I, that's what i i've always you know i never would have worked as a guy that wrote music for advertising or stuff where it was very much you right. know write this jingle for us and it must be this the great thing about children's music is how open-ended it is and that i could write nine kinds of songs nine different ways and they could be funny or goofy or romantic and uh or dreamy and you know there's so many great i i grew up with all those great disney songs from the pre yeah. disney era you know things like jungle book and and pinocchio and um yes real yes. early classics awesome. that i was raised on and uh that is some pretty deep high level songwriting um oh yeah the more you learn about songwriting and and composing the more you respect the depth of craftsmanship in that stuff um and uh so i think i always hold those things up as my you know my my targets that's what i'm trying to do i don't think i've ever gotten to that level but it's definitely what inspires me is to try and write something that could could belong in that pantheon of of classic songs definitely Um, yeah so check out i am beautiful if you can find it i can send you i'll bombard you with crazy mp3s if you're not careful (laughs) okay (laughs) Sounds good. Sounds like yeah. sounds like a plan to us. Um, you in the uh, in the movie Freaked, which thirty mm-hmm. years ago uh, was a very weird cult comedy with Keanu Reeves and Mr. T and Alex Winter and a lot of strange people. 
Um, oh. <laughs> it's having this weird rebirth on the internet lately. I'm just getting bombarded on Facebook with with freaked people who've discovered this movie lately. And it's like 20 years, nothing. Nobody ever mentioned this film. And in the last two years, now there's like 1,500 people on Facebook that have a group. <laughs> I know, yeah, that's happened a lot with like kind of weird, obscure kind of projects that people didn't really know about when it was on but all these years later now it's resurfacing and it has a huge following yeah and there's one song in there that i'm kind of proud of it's a very short song there's a sort of freak show in the middle of the movie where the different characters get up and do their uh performance for the audience and there's a character named Sockhead, who is a guy who has a sock puppet for a head voiced by bobcat goldthwaite and um famous comedian and he has his little song that he sings is kind of a bell ringing song called the wiener schnitzel polka and he just sings, we do the Wiener Schnitzel Polka because we like to eat fried veal. Hey, hey, that's all there is. <laughs> that's also on the top of my resume, along with the uh, Gershwin inspired love ballads. <laughs> schnitzel nice. polka. Every now and again, I'd get a royalty for like three cents for the Wiener Schnitzel Polka. And I always want to frame those ones. <laughs> nice. So I'm kind of curious, what's it like in your game to compose for the Your Kid Can Read DVD series? Ah, well, that was actually produced by Tom Stern, who directed Freaked. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, I did another project with him. He also directed Kevin Hart's Guide to Black History, uh, which was a Netflix special. And I did music for that. I got to do uh, one of my favorite artists of all time is Aretha Franklin. And uh, I got to do some Aretha style songs for that and then the your kid can read thing was great tom because he's known me for so long since the jim henson days knew that i had this kind of side career doing kids music so he tapped me to write a bunch of educational songs about math or geometry or various uh things and um again i had pretty free reign on that to sort of as long as it followed the curriculum and and uh achieved the goals he, he let me go musically in whatever direction i wanted to and um uh there's some pretty catchy songs on that i'm i'm trying to think of oh uh, there was a there was a rhyming song that was really fun i think it was like vowel sounds like ow i just had fun doing like ow bow foul now and then booze you know do, just writing words <laughs> with vowel sounds um yeah i i'd be curious do you guys listen to current pop music or do you know all this old music that i talk about like harry nelson and elo and the, the weird stuff mostly 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 older music for me um a little kind a little of a bit of for me. pop yeah. just a for, little bit me, but I'm, I'm mostly i'm mostly old school for me kind of like like middle I, do, up, I just listen to any like that era and then and then most of that era too so i'm like yeah for me it doesn't does for me it doesn't matter to me like because sometimes i'll listen to classic music sometimes modern depending on you know yeah. depending yeah. on how i feel in the moment because i think when you when you know the old stuff if you hear a lot of my stuff you can almost go oh tim was listening to jj kale today or tim was listening to elo today or because a lot of times i just i've i've uh i've always been really fascinated with production too the songwriting's half this this the challenge and then production is the other half about like do you want this to sound like a Queen record or do you want this to sound like a Beatles thing or do you want this to sound like The Clash or, or Sly and the Family Stone or, you know, every every one of those things to me means, oh, it's going to be these kind of drum sounds. It's going to be this kind of electric guitar sound. It's got to be this kind of organ. And I totally geek out on that stuff. 
uh, about trying to get the sounds that that make different things that give them their kind of flavor, you know, um, it often is kind of like cooking, even though I, I can't cook, but it is that sense of there's a certain spice in that. Why is that guitar sound different than any other guitar I've heard? And how do I get things to sound like that? So I often, uh, I, I think a lot of the songs on your kid can read. I, I was really trying to nail a certain kind of pop song. And, and so a lot of them are very, uh, I, I would have to listen to go okay here's I can tell you which song this is trying to sound like not that I ever rip off I'm very cognizant of if I I've numerous times gotten almost finished on a song and then realized oh crap that's the chorus to an old 10cc song <laughs> you know or that's way too close to this you know John Lennon tune or something so I I'm very nervous about ever writing something that that I realized later I ripped somebody off. But but I, you can rip off their recipe. You can rip off their guitar sound or the the way a beat sounds. I I have a beat. I love Neil Diamond. Uh, Neil Diamond wrote a lot of songs for the Monkees, and the Monkees was a big show when I was growing up. And um, and they had great writers for them. They had like Randy Newman and and Neil Diamond and um, uh, Harry Nilsson. And Neil Diamond always used this kind of just this kind of what I call ring a racka guitar pattern. So often for me, that's this that's the germ of a seed that that generates a song is to think, okay, I want I want Neil Diamond to have written this song about uh geometric solids. <laughs> you know, what if Neil Diamond had to write a song about geometric solids? And and you had the Bee Gees doing the background vocals and you had Buddy Rich on drums. That would probably be a horrible song, but I would write it. I'd take a shot at it. So. <laughs> Definitely. So you also got to write an episode for the Nickelodeon series, Clarissa Explains It All. What was that show like? Uh, Clarissa was a great experience. Uh, right after the Jim Henson hour finished, uh, I think, did you guys talk to Mark Saltzman? Yes. 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 Mm -hmm. yes. Yeah. Mark Saltman yes, was one of the awesome. writers. Yeah. Mark was amazing and he's a good musician. Anyway, Mark was friends with Mark Saltzman was friends with Mitchell Kriegman. Mm -hmm. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. Also, previous guests. Yeah. Yeah. yeah okay. Bear, so, Bear who produced Clarissa and had done Bear before that and used to work mm -hmm. Saturday Night Live. So, that was my first job right out of Jim Henson Hour was. Uh, Mitchell Kriegman was running a show at the, in New York at the, the fledgling comedy channel when it first started up. And so I got hired to write for this, the was the Rachel sweet show uh, at the comedy channel. And it was like a three hour daily block. I could go into long stories about the comedy show. That was like such a mess, but boy, I met so many people there in my, uh, in my fledgling. I think I was there for like six months living in New York and uh, I think HBO was paying me. I couldn't afford an apartment. HBO rented an apartment for me. They paid me $600 a week and rented me an apartment that cost $400 a week that they owned. So I was basically making $200 a week sleeping in at the uh, 98th Street Y. And, um, <laughs> and through that, I got to meet Mitchell. So he knew I was a, a music nerd and comedy nerd. And when Mitchell went on to do Clarissa... First, he hired me to do computer animation because that was the other thing. I was really geeking on computer animation back in the 80s. And um, I did an MTV series called The Idiot Box with Tom Stern and Alex Winter before we did Freaked. And I created the first 
computer the, long before there was AI. I created the first voiceover announcer of the future, which was this very crudely computer animated guy named Votar. And I used the computer generated voice uh, of my Amiga computer to be the voice of Votar. Uh, and so based on that, when I was doing Comedy Channel, I did some fake video games for the host and Mitchell liked those. So he hired me for, for Clarissa to do fake video games that often Clarissa would be playing on her computer. So me and another animator, because I'm not that great an animator, but I would have the idea and do the basic frames of it. Uh, we would do these fake video games for Clarissa that there's a bunch of them throughout the series. I've only recently been trying to revive my Amiga computer, which I still have in a box in the back room to see if any of these things would still run. And uh, when I turned on my Amiga 2000, there was a loud bang and a big spark and a lot of uh, smelly, toxic smoke. And I ran out of the room. And uh, so I don't think I'll be reviving those animations anytime soon. But um, part of that was I got to write a Halloween episode for Clarissa and uh, Halloween being my birthday. I had a lot of fun. Um, I think it was writing about uh, writing about a her crazy aunt comes over to stay and, and causes havoc and it turns into a bit of a train wreck of a of a Halloween, um, which was mm. loosely based on my own history with Halloween being my birthday and always having a bit of a split allegiance of wanting to enjoy my birthday, but also wanting to go out and get lots of free candy, but also trying to rush through my birthday dinner and have it still. I didn't want to move <laughs> November first. I still wanted my birthday on my birthday, but um right. It's still an ongoing struggle. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's just like having a birthday at Christmas, you know. Yeah. <laughs> God, none, of our, none of our birthdays are around Christmas. Yeah. Yeah, my daughter is December twenty first, so it is always a bit of an overlap, but uh, not too much. Not as much. Not not as much as like say like the twenty third or twenty fourth yeah. or even the twenty fifth. But that's right. That's mathematically but, correct. I can't even begin to argue that. No. Closer to 25. Hmm. <laughs> yep. Yes, indeed. So you also got to write a little bit for Star Wars The Clone Wars. What was writing that like? Well, that was through a mutual friend of my wife and I, um, named Catherine Winder, who uh, was a producer, and she was an animation producer at Lucasfilm. And uh, she's good friends with Lisa O'Brien as well, who, you know, worked at Sprout and and um, uh, Playhouse Disney. So we, I guess through those people had met me when we lived in L.A., and she was a Canadian living in L.A. And um, I think at the time they were doing Clone Wars, and she was uh involved in it and and i guess george lucas had said something to the effect that they wanted to uh maybe punch up some of the scripts and make bring in a little more what he called swashbuckling humor to things so she said oh i know just the guy for you because when i first met Catherine and her husband we were on a a tour of la we were living in la we went on this tour of uh, sort of like wine country and I was writing the movie for Babysitter Vampire at the time. And I was racking my brain trying to figure out the plot outline to, to the Babysitter Vampire movie. But I guess because she heard all my crazy ideas for that, she thought, oh, this guy's got got some crazy ideas and might be good to to add some swashbuckling, you know, wildness to to Clone Wars. 
So the big part of that for me was I got to meet, she said, George likes to meet people that are working on his stuff. So you get to meet George. You got to come to Skywalker Ranch and meet George. Um, and that was, uh, I was shaking in my bones that I was going to meet uh, George Lucas. And, um, and, you know, and I've been lucky. I've met a few big wigs like Jim Henson and Frank Oz and a few other Phil Ramone, who I didn't know was Phil Ramone, you know, but I've, I've had my <laughs> celebrity over the years, but George Lucas like, oh my God, what am I going to say to George Lucas? So hmm. what I remember most about that was that as I drove up there in the rental car and I'm trying to follow the directions to get to Skywalker Ranch, um, the my iPod's on shuffle and it's playing any other song. And as I'm driving up the laneway to Skywalker Ranch, it gets to Phil Collins in the air tonight. And <laughs> It's like the most imposing dun, 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 and it's just the opening part. And then when you kind of, they, there's a buzzer or some security had to tell your name and, and they, okay, yes. The doors to the gates opened as the Phil Collins drum fill happened. Like, <laughs> and it just oh felt my like <laughs> out of body scripted moment. How can this really be happening to me? <laughs> And I was almost too distracted to have the meeting because I was still going. <laughs> it was just like the soundtrack to my life was was happening in that moment. And um, and uh, George Lucas was very pleasant and we had a nice meeting and I asked him some of my geeky Star Wars questions. And uh, he just was really easy to talk to. And I was amazed how he really didn't ask me about what I wanted to do on Clone Wars or anything about script writing. He just sort of seemed to you know, where are you from? Do you have a family? Do you have a kid? Yeah. What do you do? And uh, how long you've been in the business? And we just chatted and then, then it was over and I was back in the hallway. Going, well, that, that was it. But I didn't tell him my story ideas. And, and then he, I guess said to my friend, Catherine, yeah, he seems nice. Yeah. He seems funny. Okay. So I got to write one. And then when I wrote it, then it became a bit of a battle because what I wrote thinking that they want more of a swashbuckling thing. I wrote what I wanted. And then the showrunner, Dave somebody his name escapes me because I, I didn't meet him personally uh I think he really it, it was too funny for him it was too this is not our show this is a little too uh, gaggy and he was probably right but at the time I was like hey come on I worked hard on all these jokes um but I think the part of the the, the argument we had was he was like a Jedi wouldn't say that and because they're like strict monks and I, my argument was that's why most of the good Star Wars movies are about people trying to be Jedis, but not full Jedi, because no one wants to see an actual monk in a story. That's a boring guy who doesn't drink, doesn't romance, doesn't do anything, but follows the rules and is a, is a, a monk. You want to see a guy trying to be that, but struggling against his own, uh, you know, humanity and his own failings and flaws. And so that was for me where a source of the comedy would come would be Anakin Skywalker trying to follow the path and it's young Anakin and, and, and trying to have some more impetuous youth come out of him that I felt, you know, the, the stuff that I saw was too serious, but I think that about everything. Cause I'm a comedy writer. Everything seems too serious to me. I'm, I'm always poking fun at stuff. So, right. Yeah. They, I don't think they were wrong. I think they were right. They, they, took out most of the jokes I added and and it still was my story, but it was much more their tone than mine. Um, mm -hmm. But it was almost like I was there a bit of, as an experiment, I think to say let, what would happen if we, if we brought more of a, a looser feel to this. And um, 
you know, they still use some of it. I think it was a looser episode than it would have been if I hadn't written it, but they definitely, uh, I think it was, my flavor was too comedy <laughs> for that. I'm not a Star Wars guy. I'm much more a, a um, uh, Spaceballs kind of guy. May the Schwartz be oh, with yeah. you. Ah, great movie. Yeah. Wonderful movie. Spaceballs. Yes. Absolutely. Mel Brooks Three, movie. Great growing up uh, you know oh, yes. Frankenstein and, and Blazing Saddles those were the movies oh, that yeah. uh, blew my mm-hmm. mind I was a absolutely yep Space Boss is a really really great movie um, you also wrote for the Henson TV movie Jim Henson's Turkey Hollow which which memory serves me correctly I think was originally going to be produced I think in the late 60s I think by Jerry yeah Zillow. I saw on um Muppet Wiki. It was yeah. It was based on a, an old story by Jim Henson and Jerry Jewell, and then years later, it was developed into something kind of different. Kind of different. I like any time, any chance to talk about Jerry Jewell. He was an amazing, amazing guy. He was my hero for the for many years. Uh, you know, first head writer. I didn't really know what a head writer was until that my first real gig on the on the Henson Hour, mm-hmm. and he was so patient with me and nice and really explained stuff to me even as i was preparing for this and looking at some of the old henson hour footage i saw i have some behind the scenes footage of of the henson hour and there was footage of the swedish chef sketch i wrote which was i think one of the first sketches i wrote for the henson hour uh i had this idea that a a cockroach gets into the the chef's kitchen and he's a french cockroach named jacques roach and jacques roach is like a french chef so when the Swedish chef wants to get the cockroach out of his kitchen, the, the Jacques Roach is trying. So Jerry liked that idea. He said, yeah, let's, let's take a shot at that. But I, so I go back to my office all excited that I'm going to write a sketch for the Henson hour or get that they've approved one of my sketches. And I realize it's Swedish chef who I love is one of my favorite characters, but I don't know oh, yeah. if you, what the Swedish chef says, like, do I write that he what he wants to say like we're welcome to the show or do i write the actual swedish gibberish he says like boo defer defer come to the shootable right yeah mm-hmm. that they're terrified staring at my laptop for about an hour too nervous and embarrassed to go ask anyone that question <laughs> because i seem like an idiot if i don't know how to write this sketch eventually I go down to Jim and Jerry's office and like a dope, I knock on the door and I'm like, do I write what the Swedish chef is trying to say? Or do I write what the Swedish chef says? (laughs) And uh, Jim and Jerry both had a laugh at my expense and uh, Jerry laughed and deferred to Jim and Jim said, Oh, you just, uh, you write the gibberish and I'll say what you write. So, uh, So then I went back to my computer and wrote Vernie Bernie or whatever like that. And uh <laughs> I couldn't believe it. He kind of he kind of delivered that verbatim with every syllable of weird gibberish that I'd written. It was uh, unbelievable to me that he would memorize that. But like when we were doing Dog City and I didn't know what an act break was and I didn't know what a narrative thing was, I was just piling jokes. So Jerry was the one who kind of guided me through you know, you gotta, you gotta tie this plot together and you gotta, you gotta have an act break where things go this, you know, he really taught me the ropes in a rush that first year. So to get to work on Turkey Hollow many years later, I I really felt the pressure to try and do justice to the story and, and try and bring as much of his original flavor to it. Cause he always had this 
uncanny ability to do kind of stuff that was it was almost edgy but it still had the muppet warmth and the family friendliness but almost in the same way bugs bunny would have a bit of a elbow to the ribs groucho marx quality uh, jerry was just i think he's often the unheralded hero of of the muppets era and mm -hmm. um and i can't say enough about what a you know inspiration he was and then the turkey hollow thing it spent a long time in development and we went through a lot of rewrites and a lot of changes and i think funding fell through it kind of was happening and then it wasn't happening and then it was back again and um i think i it was kirk thatcher was directing and uh and i'd known kirk since the jim henson hour days and and uh kirk's kirk's have you talked to kirk have you done the kirk interview yet you know you got you got to get uh -huh. kirk thatcher in here damn it because uh, he's a he's a freaking institution oh yeah um, he's there oh, he yeah. Wrote and directed just a ton for the Muppets, yeah. And he's the punk on the bus in Star Trek. So, like, other than that, those two things alone make him a legend in anybody's book, if you ask me. Um, Absolutely. So, yeah, it was just a blast to get to work with Kirk again. And uh, I think Alex Rockall was involved as producer. And hmm. she was just assistant back in the Henson Hour days. And we stayed friends after that. She was involved in the Norm show, Norman Picklestripes show that I did all the music and theme for 10 years ago or whatever um so the, for me it was mostly just a thrill to get to work because at that point it had been like maybe 20 years since i'd worked with any of the muppet people so to kind of get to regroup with them was a real blast and and i think the the final product turned out pretty fun you know um there's such a there's such a kind of unique company you know the hansen company they do their best to kind of preserve the tone and the the style of the the classic hansen bits and and they're not Disney and they're not Warner, you know, they have their own, their own vibe. And it's just, it's, it's a pretty lucky day when you get to work with them because, because you're going to get to have fun and you're going to get to do your goofiest ideas. And they're, they're very supportive, which is a uh, rare <laughs> sometimes. Yeah. Definitely. We had, I think years after just around Jim, when Jim passed, it was so abrupt and sad. And I had just, Jim seemed to really like what I did on dog city and had just they'd signed me to a development deal and he had all these plans we're gonna use you to write this and that and then he passed away abruptly you know, with ammonia and um so at first there was a bit of a odd silence i think across the whole henson universe and then they contacted me to work on this book called bordle by a writer named daniel pinkwater and we spent a year or two trying to develop this bordle book into this sort of sci-fi wizard of Oz type thing. That was a really great story and really fun, but we could never quite find the right tone and it could never quite, we never, I think in that sort of post gym era, it was still there. They were changing gears and trying to figure out who they were and how it was going. And maybe I just wasn't the right writer for it all. I know, but I still look back at that as one of the projects that I really wanted to happen with the Muppets that didn't. Um, but geez, I've got drawers and drawers full of stuff. I spent years writing that uh, we'll never see the light of day. But eventually in the Tim Burns Museum, uh, these things will all come to light. <laughs> so can you uh, share any memories from uh, writing and producing for my babysitters of Empire? So many things. I mean, my th the show itself, I'm pretty proud of. There's some pretty great, I think, some really fun, solid episodes. Uh the cast was really solid. Vanessa and uh, Atticus and Matthew were, uh, and Cam. I just saw Cameron Kennedy who played Rory. I like the trio. I like the idea of 
a, a comedy trio mm-hmm. general you've got smart uh ethan is kind of like the again having been a nerd myself in high school i'm always drawn towards characters who aren't quarterback of the football team or um or that capable i like the guy who's the lone let's think this through let's have a plan before we go marching in there with baseball bats to kill the monster but if you've got that guy who overthinks things and is maybe a little too conscious conscious a little too uh conscientious is that the word i'm thinking of? anyway you know you got that guy you need these sort of while you're thinking that I've already grabbed the bat and burst through the door and we're smashing in there. You need the guy that's the uh, act first, think later guy who's the comic foil, which is what his buddy Benny kind of was. And then, then the third guy is just the doofus, just the guy who's like three steps behind both of them. And they're both talking about the plan to beat the monster. And he's talking about sandwiches. There's just always got to be a guy who's still worried about what kind of sandwich he should have. And, um, in my experience in the real world, there's usually that guy. And that's kind of a Spinal Tap vibe or a, I don't know, I can think of any number of movies. And it was just fun writing for that kind of Marx Brothers trio of of nerd, um, goof, and doofus, I, I would say. Um, and then and then to do that in a vampire world, I just, I always like things where you take the classic story that is a hero adventure story and in, you pull out the hero and you plop in a weird nerd. Uh, so then it's a whole different story that's not a big battle scene it's more just a weird how do we not die how do we get through this and try not to die it's it's you know because you can be a little more real about you would be terrified when a vampire is chasing you and wants you wants to drink your blood and um but we got god there was a evil car we episode we did that was kind of like kind of like a christine the possessed car sort of episode and I remember doing that one and we're shooting in, in Hamilton, Ontario at like two o'clock in the morning. And, and it's supposed to be ghost car coming. And I think the guy was like, we had like a stunt guy underneath the wheel, just blind driving the car with the monitor underneath. And I'm like, he's running in front of this car. Is that safe to have a kid running in front of a remote controlled car? If that guy's monitor goes out, do we, we, we shouldn't be risking killing a teenager. Oh no, it's fine. The directors were always like fine with stuff that I was pretty sure was going to kill somebody. And we never did. Uh, I guess I shouldn't admit that on camera, but um, <laughs> we, we, we did a lot of crazy stunts for that show. Um, oh, yeah. And the other, I know my favorite line still to this day, I mean, there's a great, right. We had a great writing staff. I don't want to have to name all of them because I'll get mad. They'll get mad if I forget one, but uh, sort of my sec, my right-hand man was a, a writer named Mike kiss who I just was kind of mini me. He was smarter than me and he wrote funnier jokes. So I kind of hated him for that. But um, I would often say it's got to be a joke like this or a bit like this. And he would come back with something that was brilliant. And we did a kind of zombie episode where it turned out there was something in the coffee in the teacher's lounge, the the employee lounge that was turning all the teachers into zombies. And uh, Benny at some point takes that coffee and Ethan doesn't know it. And he's just still talking to Benny, not realizing that, that, Benny's turning into a zombie and he just has the line like he, he can't follow what Ethan's saying he just says look can I bite your head <laughs> and uh, can I bite your head is one of my favorite uh, lines of dialogue I've ever gotten away with it and maybe Mike wrote it or maybe I did but uh, that's a fine thing but my biggest story on babysitter vampire is that we were strangely successful it was the number one show for a while on the Disney channel 
and we were in season two and we were doing very well in the ratings. And our executive producer said, uh, I get word now how much trouble I'll get in for this, but I, I've told people this story, uh, maybe not on a recording, but the way I remember it is, um, he said, I don't want agents to come back for season three and ask for a big raise because we're number one. So I want you to write an ending. He's telling me at the beginning of season two, write an ending where everyone maybe dies, <laughs> you know? So I went into the writing room and I just put the index card, just said boom on it, on the board. That was where we started. The season was just a card that said boom. And we wrote the whole season to build up to there was this like witches cabal with a high council of witches and they had a headquarters in this old house and everything would build to a meeting at the witches council where they would go in there and then we'd cut to across the street and the house blows up. Big mystery. What happened? And our plan was, I can say now, that there was this portal that the witches had in their basement that led to the old country, to Transylvania, to the original home country of all the, you know, we were going to do a TV movie set in Transylvania. To, let's take the vampire show to Europe. And we were going to do a, a, a European movie, European vacation vampire style. Never in my wildest dreams did I think while we're number one on Disney Channel, we could get canceled. Did not imagine that to be possible. Lo and behold, we get canceled. And I'm like, how did we get canceled? while we're number one and apparently the answer to that was something to do with business stuff that i don't understand that was basically we're not a disney show we're a we're a foreign we're a canadian show and disney channel doesn't want the number one show on disney channel to be a canadian show they don't own <laughs> that may not be true that's the that's the reasoning i was told so the upshot of that is business is business. That's fine. But I just still feel culpable to this day. And every now and again, I'll get some fan coming like, did they die? Did everyone die? Did the show, they go into a house, they die. The end who you, I'm the bastard that did that. I'm the guy that killed all the main characters in a show, the end. And uh, I have to, I have to deal with that responsibility for the rest of my life. So just for the record, it's because I thought that we could never get canceled as the number one show. And I was wrong. And that was a good life lesson uh, for me. <laughs> you can always get canceled. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kind of curious. Do you keep in touch with any of the My Babysitter's Vampire cast? Uh, no, not really. It's a little too bad. I I, I think so. I keep more in touch with the writers. Hmm. Uh, because, you know, they the, the writing room is upstairs. And we're up there thinking of episodes five, six, and seven. While we're downstairs in the studio, they're shooting episode one. And I would... When you're showrunner, you're kind of running all day between the set and the back to the writer's room and back to the set. And uh, uh, so even though the cast sort of knows you, I think there's also that weird thing where I'm just like, they blame everything on me, not in a bad way, but they're like, oh, why are we doing this crazy scene? Or, oh my, this ending doesn't make sense. So Tim's got some crazy idea. They're just, they're teenagers thinking, what the heck's going on now in my day? And that that guy over there, it's his fault <laughs> that we're stuck in a car or we're stuck standing in the rain at two o'clock in the morning on some weird set. So I we didn't really have that friendly a relationship. Not unfriendly. We were never like, you know, enemies or anything, but I think they just treat right. me as one of the suits. I'm one of the execs. Mm -hmm. Um because of the age difference in that. Right. I remember Vanessa looking at my iPod during a filming and, and just going, you got a lot of weird old shit on your, like she just couldn't believe the weird music I had on my iPod. <laughs> you know, so we didn't have a lot of 
things in common, I think more than anything. And, um, and mostly I would, I would joke around. I think, I think Atticus Mitchell playing Benny was the most, um, we got along the best just because he liked to, he liked to be a goof and trade, trade wisecracks. Um, and Matthew was a little more serious. So he would just kind of like trying to maintain his stamina, but I haven't, I mean, I'm still friends. I just saw on Facebook that, uh, Cameron Kennedy, who played Rory is, uh, engaged. And I think he's going to have a, he's going to have a kid or no, he's married. Oh, he's, uh, uh, nice. I, I hope I'm not in trouble for saying engaged. Oh, I mean, oh. No, he's married and going to have a kid. So I'm very excited for him. Cause I told him <laughs> oh. on my own personal thing is like, as much as you think showbiz or whatever else the best job the best thing in my life is is uh, being a dad is the coolest and uh uh i didn't expect that before i was a dad it took my wife longer to have a kid we didn't have our kid till we were 40 and um best uh, best thing ever so um i'm going to tell you that that's your life advice you, you know you think stuff's fun well you have a kid then 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 shit gets real <laughs> in various in various real ways um but no it's um so i'm very happy for him and um i know mike kiss worked on the hardy boys series which i think atticus was in so i think they stayed friends i haven't seen matthew knight show up on things i don't know what he's up to i know he was kind of he'd been an actor since long before he was like a kid actor and i think when we were done he was almost like uh tired of the game i think he was like gonna take a break from acting for a while so i, I haven't seen him around on things I hope he's doing well, though. He was a hell of a, just a super talented kid and a real hard worker. Absolutely. You know? Definitely. You've run through my entire resume. <laughs> Pretty much. Uh, you also worked on the third season of Crank Yankers as a supervising writer. Yes. Could you kind of talk about your work on that show and what exactly is supervising writers? I know you touched up on a head writer, but yeah, what well, exactly is a supervising writer? It's not anything. I think that's just a sort of, you know, it's kind of a, a mid-level credit, meaning you're not a junior writer. It's 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 only just, I think, probably a pay bump or something, but it doesn't change your responsibilities or, or the job in any way. It just means uh, not junior writer and you probably get paid $50 more a week than the... Uh, regular writer but that was a, a really fun show to work on again that was when i i got my green card i'd come back to canada and i had uh produced a show called black fly with a comedian named ron james that was shot out in halifax out east and we'd had our we had our daughter and then uh we'd applied for a green card and we got our green card so you have six months after you get your green card to move to the States. You have to make use of it within six months, which was awkward because our daughter had just been born. So we wanted to wait to get a result. We moved when she was five months old, I think, uh, which was a tricky time to relocate to Los Angeles. Uh, and so now having just moved to Los Angeles, I was looking for something to do. And Tom had just started working. Tom Stern had just started working as a director or was working as a director on Crank Anchor since the beginning. Uh, he'd also worked on the man show with Jimmy Kimmel and was, was good friends with Jimmy. So um, uh, that's why I got, I guess, called in and they liked what I did. And so I got to write on, on the crank anchor show, which was a really unique writing experience because the way they would do that, uh, like, first off, for those that don't know, crank anchors is a prank phone call show. 
right and you you have you guys seen it do you know the show it's puppets puppets act out yeah. the, the yeah. audio from the prank phone call oh yeah <clears throat> oh yeah. yeah a lot of wonderful puppeteers on that show too yes yes and the thing was uh um I used to do prank phone calls as a teenager and get in a lot of trouble for it. And I used to try and record them on my little cassette recorder. Um, mm. Just, you know, one step up from is your refrigerator running kind of crap. And um, so to be in a position where now I was getting paid to think up prank phone calls and actually do them was astonishing to me. And obviously they are real prank phone calls. So you can't really script them because they have to really happen. But what you do is you come up with the idea for a prank phone call. Like, you know, we're going to, I think we had this one idea that we did um, with Drew Carey about a guy who uh, it's, I think for a Christmas episode, we did a call where um, dad can't afford Christmas presents for his kids. So he wants to, uh, we were calling reindeer farms to see if we could rent a dead reindeer that they could put on the lawn. So the dad can say, see, Santa had an accident and the reindeer died. And that's why there's no presents this Christmas. So <laughs> that's the kind of dark stuff <laughs> that's coming up. So you come up with a bunch of weird ideas like that. And some of them would get, yeah, let's go try that. And the, um, the technicality was you can't record phone calls in California. Uh, the show was done in LA. So you, we would have to drive to a studio in Las Vegas because Nevada is what they call a one party consent state. Uh, that meant you're allowed to record phone calls without telling the other party you're recording them. So we would drive to this recording studio in uh, Las Vegas and the talent, like the guest star of that week, I did sessions with Eminem and with uh, Drew Carey and, um, Tony Barbieri, who played numerous characters on the show, a, a rich, an eccentric millionaire named Niles. We would do the calls with them and you sit there in the studio. There'd usually be about three writers and you'd have a whiteboard and you're all in headphones listening to the call and you call the reindeer farm and he tries, you've written a few opening lines or possible things the guy might say and some possible responses, but it always very quickly takes some left turn into something you didn't expect. And then then the sound of squeaking sharpies on whiteboards as we all three writers try and write responses to whatever the guy on the phone is saying and then the the guest would look at the three possible responses you've written and, and pick something to say you know so it was a real seat of your pants writing experience trying to come up with jokes on the fly while the call's happening and then a sort of competitive thing like gee i hope he picks my line i hope you felt good if i right. picked your not the other two guys um and some really really crazy calls and strange conversations that would happen and then they cut them down to the the three minute or four minute version that would end up on the show um so yeah i mean the other thing i should mention i did then during that was a show called Saul of the mole men that was this really weird adult swim show that tom stern directed with a, another writer friend of ours josh gardner who would do music sometimes and i wrote oh, yeah. a theme for that called Saul of the Mole Men that Jim Jimmy Kimmel's brother John sang. He's a really good singer, John. And um so that's another part of my musical resume is the theme song from Saul of the Mole Men. Wait, no, I'm confused. No. John Kimmel sang Mustache Ride, which was the sort of Doobie Brothers rock and roll 
song parody in Soul of the Mole Man. But the theme song was sung by Trey Parker from from South Park. Oh, wow. Uh, so I wrote this sort of T-Rex inspired uh, 60s adventure theme song, 60s rock T-Rex thing. And then um, Trey Parker sang it. So I was pretty thrilled to have a song of mine sung by Trey Parker. And that was the theme song for that. And and the, the reason John Kimmel, who I met because he was also a writer on Crank Yankers, um, he came to, I had to pay him. Did he pay me or did I pay him? I think he paid me for playing guitar on some track or something or maybe i no, i had a hundred bucks in my pocket to pay him for singing on this one track for salt of the mole men and it was my last night in la before i was moving out and going back to canada and um uh it's like two in the morning and i'm packing up my little garage studio in la to to move back to canada and uh i get uh I get uh, held up. I get mugged at gunpoint. A guy, a guy comes into my studio and puts a gun to my head, and um, and says, "We're going for a ride in your car." <laughs> Do you don't want to hear this? This story is taking a left turn. You don't have to hear this whole story if you don't want to. But uh, Crank Anchors always makes me think of that. Of John, I mean, I mean, you can. Well, it's just um, I ended up going for a ride with a guy with a gun to my head. And the only way I got rid of him was I had that hundred bucks in my pocket that I was going to pay John Kimmel for that song. And so that hundred bucks saved my life that evening. And, uh, and uh, that guy drove away and I, uh, I, I survived to tell this story. And then I got out of LA the next day and I was never, I, it was a good way of making me never want to move back to LA because uh, I literally left with a gun to my head and um it was it was weird <laughs> but uh, i can imagine yeah yeah thanks frank yankers and salt of the mole men for uh, putting that hundred bucks to my pocket right see That's it's all part of the rich showbiz it's been a rich showbiz experience for me i certainly got the full ride i think i'm uh i'm ready to just you know stay in my basement and occasionally golf <laughs> <laughs> nothing wrong with that nothing no. wrong with that at all Another film you wrote the screenplay for, as I mentioned in your introduction, was An American Werewolf in Paris. Could you uh, talk a little bit about that? Well, it's a similar sob story to uh, the Babysitter Vampire debacle um, in that um, while we were finishing up Freaked, uh, it should be like 1995 or something, Tom, no, I guess 1993, yeah, it was when it was released. We had gotten the job to write the sequel, Tom and I, to uh, because Alex, I think, was on to shooting another movie, and Alex Winter. So Tom and I pitched an idea for American Werewolf in Paris through our agent had, had gotten the call. And um, I had the idea that in most werewolf movies, even American Werewolf in London, which I love, is one of my favorite horror movies, um, because it's one of the few funny horror movies that still it, it combines horror and comedy as well as anything. It was a big influence on me and it's, and babysitter vampire as well. The same trying to make it still scary, but have a sense of humor about it. Um, but the problem with werewolf movies is the hero is usually the werewolf in most older werewolf movies. And that means you have an ending where your hero can't confront the villain because the hero is the villain. And that bugged me. So I was 
set myself to thinking, is there a way you could write a werewolf story where the hero would actually have somebody to defeat at the end? Uh, so I came up with this. I invented some lore. You can just, it's all mythology, so you can invent a new myth. So I invented the myth that if you find the werewolf that bit you, that infected you in the first place, and and bite its heart or eat its heart before midnight within, I forget what time period, I think the next full moon was what I came up with, Mm. Um, that then that would nullify the curse and you would be you would be saved so that was the main inspiration that i think tom may kill me for this but i think that was my idea was to say is there a way we could have a way that he's not just the only werewolf and that maybe it's about finding the werewolf that bit you and if you capture them and kill them you're saved so that that was a cool hook for a plot and um Tom and I, even on our own diamond, we didn't have much money and freaked at that point was, was dead because we had just shot it. We put everything we had into freaked. And then the president of the studio who greenlit it got fired. And the new president of the studio hated the movie and told us he was going to kill it and not release it. And it was uh, a waste of time to even finish it. But we were trying to finish it anyway. Tom had spent, Tom and Alex had spent a year of their life editing it and trying to save it. So, Tom is staying at my place in Toronto at the time, and we're writing uh, writing American Werewolf. So the deal was, we were told, this is going to be a low-budget, straight-to-video, never-released-in-theaters, cheap, low-budget movie, and Tom was excited to direct it. He had talked to some of the creature people that worked on Freaked to do designs for cool werewolf transformations and cool ways to visualize the werewolf, and... We were going to go to Paris. So without being paid to do it or without the studio paying us, we on our own dime went to Paris for a week and stayed in a really cheap like youth hostel on the floor, sleeping on a floor in Paris. But it was still Paris. I'd never been to Paris. I was amazed to find myself in Paris. And it's where I developed my taste for uh, better wine and good coffee, because even in the crappiest place I discovered in Paris, they still drink good coffee good coffee they it's beneath them if you're alive you're going to have a good croissant damn it i don't care what level of crap <laughs> you could be sleeping on the floor in the crappiest apartment you're still going to eat a good croissant in the morning and get a decent cafe au lait so uh that was a big step up from the instant coffee in a cup that i was uh, accustomed to for that so um we turned in this script that tom and i worked so very hard on and we waited anxiously for the reply to the script we came up with after a week of researching the tunnels. It was all set in the catacombs underneath Paris, and we visited old cemeteries and strange old dilapidated churches and all these cool locations, and the rave scene was big, so we wanted to tie it into the rave scene at the time and have this idea that, well, maybe he thinks he's just having some drug, somebody slips something in his drink, and he doesn't know if the werewolf stuff's real, he just thinks maybe it's the result of some acid trip he's been on. Um, so that all came together and we handed it in and we waited for the feedback. Eventually we got the call. Uh, the agent said, I got good news and I got bad news. The good news is the studio loves your script. The studio thinks this is not just a low budget straight to video thing anymore. They think this could be a major summer release. Uh, and they want to go big budget, real movie on this. They, they love this idea. They think it's great. The bad news is you guys aren't summer movie main release guys. So you're fired and they're going to hire a new screenwriter to rewrite it. And they're going to hire a big name director to direct it. Mm. 
So that was a big kick in the teeth, especially for Tom, who was really after what seemed like the failure of Freak to determine to redeem himself with directing Werewolf. And now because we did such a good job on the script, we've been fired. And he doesn't get to direct it because he's not famous. So we were really, uh, again, I, I can't even really remember how I felt at the time, other than it was a very weird experience that we, because of WJ rules, would get notifications when a new writer was brought onto the project. And every big name in screenwriting circles was on that list. I think there were like 12 different screenwriters who did a pass on that script and um, some pretty big names. We were still the main credited writers because it was our idea and our original script, but it got rewritten so many times. And I didn't even get, we didn't even get invited to the premiere of the movie. We didn't even get invited to see the movie. I had to buy my own ticket to go see it when it premiered in Toronto. And I sat there like I was watching somebody else's fever dream of something I had vaguely dictated because it was like seeing my script had been our script. It was just backwards and stuff we hated so it we didn't really like the finished film at all and it was especially tough on tom because he was so had invested so much time into how he wanted to direct it um so it was a big setback for us and it was made us kind of bitter <laughs> um and i is again the irony of it all being that if we'd done a crappier job on the script <laughs> we would have been able to do this direct to video small movie that tom that we were hoping to do it would have been our movie but um we did too good a job just like with vampire being number one you think you can't get canceled apparently that can backfire and apparently writing too good a script can backfire um but that's that's how it happened <laughs> <laughs> yeah people may like the film i've had heard from people that like that film and maybe they do it's just i can't see it with fresh eyes i can only see the script i remember that i what i thought that film should be so to me right. it's all it's mm -hmm. a joke mm -hmm. tied together but uh yeah but it's a, it's a good showbiz story isn't it yeah absolutely <laughs> yep yeah since we're getting close to wrapping up soon uh can you share any projects you're currently working on can i hmm uh yeah just trying to think because I've had super several things in numerous stages of development, non-development. Um, I did, I did a new theme song for a new kids show, a new animated show uh, about a kind of super powered bunny. It's called super buns. Hmm. And, uh, so hmm. keep your eyes out for super buns. I think that's going to be on Peacock and should be coming out within the next couple months. Um. And I really had fun on that theme song. It was a real blast, uh, very high energy. So uh, I was very thrilled they liked it. And um, I'm doing music for, I don't know if I'm allowed to talk about my wife's project that she's developing with Catherine Winder, who used to work at Lucasfilm and was the one that uh, did Clone Wars. She's she's on a new project that my wife's working on. And uh, it does involve chickens. That's all I can say. And I'm writing music for it. And I'm just writing some music. There's several composers writing uh, a bunch of stuff, but I've written a few songs for them that uh, I'm looking forward to, to hearing. And uh, then I've been developing a new series with Nickelodeon for the last two years that's been on again and off again, but looks promising right now. You never, I can't say, but 
I don't think they'd like me saying what it's called because they haven't greenlit it yet. But um, but it's with Nickelodeon UK, so it would probably be a Britain Canada co-production, and um, it's an idea I had long ago after I read a science article about uh, some weird things involved in quantum quantum physics that uh, have to do with a different aspect of time travel that I've never seen really used in a show. So that's as much as I'm going to say. It's a vaguely time travel show for tweens and, uh, and uh, hope it exists. <laughs> if you see something new on Nickelodeon about a time traveling kid, uh, that's probably me. And, uh, but you know, we're at the, I've written three pilot scripts for them now, three episodes. And, um, we're supposedly at the yes or no stage. So hopefully after two years of back and forth, you know, and it's been a long time during the pandemic, <laughs> things were very slow, but I'm also at that stage of my career. As I, you know, tell you all these stories, I'm realizing how long I've been at this crazy game. And, uh, if I can afford to just, like I say, stay home and write some of my own music and just try and, uh, watch younger people. Cause I don't understand enough about 12 year olds anymore. Uh, I grew up in a pre-computer world. I find it harder to write things for today's audience because they live in a very different world than I grew up in. And um, it's somebody else's problem to figure that stuff out now. Um, so I'm probably going to do more music. And like I say, maybe I'll do a kid's music CD and then you guys uh, will get a copy of that. Or you can you can weigh in on what songs should be on it. Nice. Kim Burns, Very cool. Kid. Definitely. So... Nice. So are there any words you'd like to say to those who have supported and followed your career? Thanks. Uh, apologies. <laughs> apologies. for the <laughs> uh, Apologies for all the stuff that uh, didn't quite work, but um, you know, I, again, I, I, I am always very grateful. That, uh, I think when I look back at how many things happened to me in my twenties, mostly on the heels of the Hanson Hour and because the Hanson Hour introduced me to Tom Stern and we became such good friends and did all these fun things together, introduced me to Mitchell Kriegman, got me to New York. Uh, so many of these things dominoed from that. And uh, there's a lot, I, that's a, to me a big lesson forever is like, you just, you got to take chances. You got to go do stuff that, that seems fun. I've always been in it for fun. Do what seems fun and makes me laugh. And hopefully it makes somebody else laugh or what tune seems catchy to me, hopefully seems catchy to somebody else. But you, as much as you want to please an audience, I think you've got to be your own audience and find, uh, do the stuff that, uh, that inspires you. And, and the people that inspired me like Jim and Jerry Jewell always seem to have that, that spark that they made themselves laugh and they had fun doing it. And, um, and if you had the funny, that's funny wins. So uh, stick with that and the rest will sort itself out, you know? Definitely. Yeah. Yes, of course. Uh, people would like to connect with you. Where can people find you? Oh, probably in a dumpster somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, what time of day are we talking? Uh, you know, I'm... <laughs> I'm on Facebook. There's a freaked page that, like I say, is growing in in um, interest. And um, I guess I probably shouldn't hand out my personal email on, on the internet. So I, right. I, I will. Yeah. 
I still can't get over the fact that there's people who know who I am yet. Like it's been a bit of a snowball. I've, I'm always happy being in the background, but, um, but uh, you just look for me on, on through freaked or whatever else. And, uh, and um, I'm playing music. I'm, I have a good friend named Peter Wildman, who's a comedy guy who was in a classic, a great comedy troupe from Canada named the frantics. And um, I'm playing music with him on September 22nd in uh, Toronto at the SoCap Theater. I'll be doing an evening of comedy songs with him. And he's got CDs and albums most that I've, that I've produced and we've recorded here. So check out Peter Wildman if you don't know about him. And uh, keep your ears tuned for Tim Burns music coming in the future. Definitely. Links yes. to those will be in the description for people to connect. So. Yep. The last question that uh, Jake's about to ask is a question we ask all, all of our guests at the end of each interview. Go ahead, Jake. Thank you, Chris. So, of course, you know, this podcast is called Jake's Happy Nostalgia. Hey, look at that. When you think of nostalgia, what do you think of when your own words, how would you define the word nostalgia? I do think of a famous quote from uh, a comedian whose name eludes me who said nostalgia is another word for brain death. And I disagree with that. Because I like nostalgia. I like the old things. And my version of nostalgia is, uh, I think of my first childhood memories of shows that excited me. And uh, for me, it was the Batman show. I oh, used yeah. to watch Batman series with my dad. And I knew it was one of the shows I used to watch because I couldn't read yet. And he would have to read the comic book sound effects that would come up in the fight scenes. And I can still remember his voice saying, pow, biff, kazam, klabow. So uh, when I was in a punk band years later and I needed a nickname, I chose Biff. And uh, I was Biff Burns for several years. In, in I like that, yeah. And that, that was sort of call back to the, the Batman sound effects because it reminded me of my dad. Nice. Great word send off. Uh, uh, that's great. So, yeah, absolutely. Great words. Well, Tim, thank you so much for taking the time to do this uh, interview on our podcast. This is a blast. Yes, yes. it was. Yes, and it thank you for happen much. I'm I'm just shocked anybody out there's I'm I'm always just trying to get the stuff off my desk and I forget that there's people who actually watch it and enjoy it. So it's it's really heartening to me to uh see that you guys really enjoyed this stuff and paid attention and, and appreciate that. Appreciate yeah, it a lot. Yeah, yeah, it means a lot. And thank you very much, you know, for, for what you've done over the years. You know, you know, for what you've done is, you know, it's been a part of our lives for, for so long, especially Sprout and and keep up the great work and cannot wait was What's next for you, Miss Down the Line, especially with the future projects you'll be working on that you can talk about later eventually. On. <laughs> so, Good. And, yes, and, yes. Actually, and actually, uh, um, saw what what your wife has done. That's that's awesome. That she yeah. worked. Let's amazing. go show. She goes show. You know, world. Yeah. We're gonna waffle preschool, preschool, lots of things. But yes. yeah. Yes. Yeah, we both. It. We all met. In school at, at Ryerson was used to be the radio and television course I took. She was uh, we were classmates there and uh, oh, cool. ah together ever since. Nice, ah wonderful. Nice. nice. Well, enjoy the rest of your day, Tim. We'll let you know when this goes up. Yes, yep. super. Absolutely. Edit out the dumb bits if you can. Make me look semi intelligent. I, I I beg you. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> enjoy the rest of your day, Tim. Have a good rest of your day, Tim. Thank you so nice much for taking time to do this. You too. You too. You too. You too. Take care, Tim. Bye, Tim. And it's goodbye from us as well. We absolutely enjoy our time with amazing Tim Burns. And oh my gosh. Yes. Again, as Jake it's said, great. grew up with his work from Sprout. Um, but yes, keep on the lookout for more wonderful interviews. And to close this out, what do we say, Jake? 
Keep nostalgia alive. Take care, everyone. See you next time. Take care. Bye. 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 Thank you for tuning in to another wonderful Jake's Happy Nostalgia Show interview. Be sure to follow Jake and the crew on social media and stream the show wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And as always, remember to keep nostalgia alive. Bye-bye.